You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Once again, my good friend Ryan Holiday on the podcast. I mean, Ryan and I have worked together on so many different projects over the past eight years. Yeah, we've known each other for about eight years. We worked, he helped me with the marketing for Choose Yourself. He was actually originally the first person who I enlisted to be the producer for this podcast. But he's been just burning up a storm on the bestseller list, writing bestseller after bestseller. And his latest book, which I think now actually, and I always say this, but I think his latest book is his best book, Lives of the Stoics. And it's basically, he explains the various philosophies of the most famous Stoic philosophers. And not only is this a great way to understand such an important philosophy, but it's almost like a history book about ancient Rome. And he's such a good storyteller. I felt like I was getting this real great and easy to understand view of the history of ancient Rome. But even more importantly than that is that Stoicism is a great philosophy for today's day and age. It's it's not overly religious, like there's no man with a beard, there's no, you know, there's no magic in it. And you could be religious, but also a stoic, but it's more philosophy of how to basically deal with all the different things life throws at us. And no matter if you're the biggest success in the world, or if you just lost your job, or if you're having troubles in relationships, no matter who you are, we all have different problems. And stoicism is a great set of tools and techniques and principles for dealing with both the the difficult points in our lives and even in dealing with the high points in our lives. It's a great way of viewing things and learning to view things with some detachment. And it it makes life easier to deal with. It makes problems easier to solve. It makes good moments in life easier to enjoy. I really admire the philosophy of stoicism and once again, I also really admire Ryan Holiday's take on it. Uh, I like, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. And most of all, I enjoyed the discussion you're about to listen to. Here we go, Ryan Holiday. Pro- that it's really hard to know whether you're the crazy one or if everyone else is being crazy. Be- believe me... <laughs> I mean, I, because I'm not good at being quietly smart, so maybe I'm being aggressively stupid. I don't know. But 
if I have a strong opinion, I, I write about it, particularly if I have a story to tell. Sure. Like, that's just my style. And so, of course, I've gotten myself into, I don't want to say trouble because the huge majority of people were totally fine with my New York City is Dead article, yeah. but there was the violently 5% vocal minority. That 5% turned out to be well over a million people because something like 30 or 40 million people read this article. And it was just astonishing. So I had really had to doubt my, I, I was like, am, am I an idiot? And then I was in this position, like, am I being forced to defend New York City dying as if I wanted to be? Like people kept putting me in that position too. Sure. And so I had, to, I had to kind of ramp up my stoicism skills for about a month and a half here um, just to have a, a thicker skin. And I went through several phases of skin thickening during this entire process. I felt that too, where it's like, let's say you decide, let, let's obviously there's like a certain amount of sort of choice and personal comfort. Although I think there's like an objective sort of right or wrong as well. But let's say you're like, Hey, I, do, I, I, I feel like I don't want to see anyone for months and months. I'm going to wait for this to be over. Uh, you know, maybe you have some pre-existing condition or whatever. You would think you'd just be able to make that private discuss that private decision and it would be sort of generally respected. Uh, but what I think this has also been good practice in, for, in a world that's not particularly good at this, is the sort of general enforcing of boundaries and like uh, speaking up for yourself. So I'll give you an example. We, we drove to see my in-laws who live in California. We, we have an RV. So we drove in the RV. We didn't see a single person. We didn't step outside, like we didn't step in a gas station. There was no social interaction whatsoever. But so we pull into this place where we're camping for the night and there's a guy maybe like 50 feet away who works at the, the park. And we were like, you know, hey, um, you know, where's spot 33A or whatever, right? And he starts like walking towards the car, not wearing a mask, a total stranger. This is like in July. So things are much you know different in Arizona at this time too. He starts walking up to the thing. And it's like, if a, if a total stranger walked up to my car to stick their head in the car to give me directions on a normal day, I'd be like, back the fuck up. Like, we don't need to get this close to each other, you know? And, uh, and so he starts walking towards the car and my wife rolls up the window and, uh, you know, he gets offended. Like he's about to stick his head in our car with no mask. We're both total strangers to, to each other in the middle of a pandemic that is spread through close proximity and through the air. Right. But the point is, you have like, so he, he was doing a rude thing and somehow he was offended. Right. But the point is you, you have to, like, I think a lot for a lot of times in my life, especially, and you write about this in the power of no, it's hard to be like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not okay with that. Like, this is my boundary, you know? And, yeah. and because the stakes in a pandemic are so much higher, no, I'm not going to come inside and let you swipe my credit card. You can take it over the phone. You know what I mean? Like, like it's been, it's been really good for me, like enforcing my boundaries. So, and I think, I feel like, I feel like stoicism is a really good philosophy for this. And, and now we are kind of getting yeah. into the, the podcast sure. here, but I feel like stoicism is a really good philosophy for this because you can't get upset at that guy, right? Yeah. Like he's, he's being him. You don't, like you said, he's a stranger. You don't know him. He has 50 years of philosophy and uh, his own personal beliefs that he grew up with. Maybe, maybe he believes the virus is over. Maybe he believes yeah. it was a hoax. Maybe he believes uh, masks don't work. Um, 
you don't know and you can't, there's, I realize you, there's, there's two things you can't ask him. You can't ask him why is he doing something because you're not going to get an answer that makes sense. And it's, it's a meaningless question to ask a stranger sure. who's doing a behavior you don't like. And you can't ask him to do something else because he could do whatever he wants and so can you. And that's the whole point of the boundaries. But you have every right to do what is, as maybe the Sto Stoics would say, what is virtuous and the wise path for you at that moment without having to enforce your your everything onto him and everyone else. Well, I, th I, I, I agree up until a point. I mean, I think Arizona would have been much better as a state if it had a mask ordinance and it wouldn't have been one of the worst hit states in the country. But uh, I, I think the idea that, like Mark Surrealis has this great exchange in meditations where he says, when you meet a shameless person, tell yourself, is a world without shameless people possible? And then he goes, no. And then he says, so understanding that a certain number of these people have to exist helps you wrap your head around the interaction when you meet one of them. And so like, even with masks, I think this is something that, that people generally, I'm not generally very pro mask, uh, very on the, the, the mask side, I wear one, whatever. The point is there, the science doesn't say that a hundred percent of the people have to wear masks. It's that if the majority of people wear masks, it will dramatically slow the spread of the virus and then we're all safer. So the point is, we don't actually have to get everyone to do it. We just have to get most people to do it. And that means that a certain percentage of people that you meet are gonna be the people who are not included in that percentage. So if you can get to a place where you're not trying to bully the individual and you just let that sort of roll off your back, you're gonna be much happier. And this is also true for racism, for idiots on the internet, for you know people with abhorrent political views, so on and so forth, like a certain percentage of people are always gonna be the, the people who have taken the wrong take. And so if you take it upon yourself to like forcefully convert each one of them, not only are you gonna be unhappy, but you're, you're, never, gonna, you're never gonna succeed either. So I, I sort of have found myself over and over again going, this is one of those people. I don't need to sweat this. I just need to do what's right for me and my family. And that's what I control. And so that's a better use of my time and resources. Right. So, so, so kind of like a point in the middle there is you, uh, and this is sort of the approach I've been taking is you can state your opinion without having to either control or, or have any emotional effect at all from the outcome of stating that opinion. Yes. So for instance, I can write an article that either makes a lot of people happy or pisses off a lot of people. And I can't one by one, then you say, no, 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 this is why I'm right. I just have to kind of move on to the next thing and, you know, either change course because I believe things differently or, or double down or just write a different, about a different topic altogether. Like I just, I have to, everybody has to just release the outcomes you so you see on Twitter. I mean, the entire business model of like Twitter and Facebook is everybody trying to convince everybody else of stupid, shitty things. And Facebook gets a penny every time. No, I gotta, I gotta make say my last word to this complete stranger about you know how hydroxychloroquine binds iron to the cell and blah well, blah. Well, no, blah. the entire the entire business model is let me get an unsolicited opinion from you, and then find another person who will then give me their opinion on your opinion, and then we'll just do that on an endless loop until the world ends. And so uh, th this is a weird thing that I found too, like 
so I have a I have obviously a newsletter where I recommend books every month. And and last I did it last week, and I recommended a book that I read that was not uh, particularly pro-Trump. It's very anti-Trump. The book is called Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump. And I thought it was a great title, and it was actually a really interesting book. So I recommend this book, and of course, a, a bunch of people sort of lose their mind about it. And and they were like, why are you putting politics in here? You know, what, keep your opinions to yourself. And 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 what I would reply to them nicely is, the entire fucking purpose of this email is my opinion. That's literally what it is. I tell you things that I like, and if you also like them, you can buy those things. That's literally what you signed up for. But people are unable to accept in this one narrow part of the world, apparently, like on these few handful of issues, that some of those opinions are going to be different than their opinions. And so we've come to a place where we, we can't accept that uh, that people have different views. Uh, and that's like, that's a, a weird breakdown of society. It is weird. And look, it's not unusual, right? It has happened in the past, not only in the US, but in, in pretty much every other country on the planet. Like people, I think it's a little bit more extreme now because we've been coddled as a society for, for too long, but this is not an unusual polarization. It's US has certainly been as polarized before. But uh, it does just feel weird. Like, Joe, you know, I just read an article today, Joe Rogan's podcast on Spotify. Some employees want to um, have like a, a censoring committee so that they can like edit his podcast before they're released or sometimes reject them like employees of Spotify. Sure. And it's like, to your point, if you agree or disagree, doesn't really matter. <laughs> like, like I, there's plenty of people who say opinions that I disagree with, but there might be many reasons I listen to them, not just for one particular opinion. Maybe I even want to hear the opposite opinion of mine because I want to learn the opposite opinions. So there's, that's the whole basis of a, a political liberalism is that, uh, is that many ideas come together and they all agree on a system of consensus to to vote a wise leader or wise policies into office. Yeah, I think the tricky thing that's happened is, okay, so, you know, America is founded on this idea of, of freedom of expression. And we've always said like, hey, look, if you wanna have abhorrent, stupid, racist beliefs, like you're welcome to, right? Because we always understood that a very small percent, like, like, um, there might be like three KKK members in your town, right? Which isn't enough to matter in any real way, right? Or you might have, you know, uh, you know, a, 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 on, on either side of the political spectrum, the number of extremists in any one area is gonna be relatively small, right? Because these are beliefs that are in the far, 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 far minority, right? Um, I think what's what we're struggling with technologically is what happens when the internet allows all of the people with abhorrent beliefs to come together and and because of other technologies, whether it's cheap airfare or social media or whatever, also get together and do things in the real world as well, right? We first experienced this problem with with fundamentalist uh, with Islamic fundamentalists that uh, like the vast majority of, of people who are who are Islamic are totally peaceful, wonderful, 
no different than, than people of any other religion. But there's a set of fundamentalists who have, you know, sort of antisocial beliefs. And when they're able to use technology to come together, that becomes a sizable, uh, you know, toxic group that can cause real problems for everyone. So it's like the alt-right and uh, the white nationalist movement. And then on the other side, you have Antifa and some of the other extremist leftist movements. Um, the and, and, and then you have sort of almost above politics, now you have QAnon. You have these ridiculous, offensive, stupid, you know, uh, belief systems that are able to get, if not critical mass, at least a large enough number of people together that we're having, it's having a scope and an impact in a way that we have struggled with before. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and I'll just add, there's like a third group though, which is, or a fourth group, which is people like me, like I'm, I'm really passionately centrist. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not alt left and I'm not alt right. I'll, I might believe in some economics issues that are considered right. But by the way, in some decades they're considered left. So who knows? And I might believe in some social issues that are usually considered left. But again, that's, that's changed over, you know, decade by decade. That's, that's changed as well. And I also, by the way, have, some of my best friends or have the opposite views of me. Right. And that's not a big deal to me either. Like, I don't feel like I need to be friends with everybody who has the exact same sure. views as me. I, I sort of, you know, I, I kind of think everybody has their own unique set of views, but I, I get it. I get bothered when two things, one is because I'm centrist. If I express an opinion, I find that people who are alt left think I'm alt right. And people who are alt right call me a libtard. <laughs> so because, just because I'm centrist, I will get both insults. I'll be like, I'm a fascist libtard. No, I, I, get, I get that too. It's crazy. And, 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 you know, as I talk about in Lives of the Stoics, one of the, the second of the four virtues for the Stoics is moderation. The idea of the midpoint between two extremes being the best position. I mean, imagine how insane it must feel to be Joe Biden right now. For 40 years, you've been a middle of the road uh, centrist Democrat, and 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 suddenly you're being portrayed on the right as being a radical socialist, you know, like a communist crazy person, and then on the left they're mad that you're too electable. You know what I mean? Like it's it's the, we we have this insane almost in in almost every asset, uh, facet of society we've come to see moderation as a sin, whether it's like. Hey, uh, like I talked about this uh, in, in this piece I wrote, like a, a few years ago, Andrew Luck retired. Uh, for, he, he, he walked away. He, he, he just recovered from an injury. He walked away from the, um, from the Indianapolis Colts. And people were like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm, I'm retiring because I've made $100 million playing football. I've gotten the shit kicked out of me. I, you know, I made it to multiple. I had a great career. I'd like to leave before they cart me off the field in a stretcher. You know what I mean? Yeah. And people couldn't wrap their head around that. So we, we like, in a sense, Donald Trump is, is, is a symbol not of where we are politically, but of our inability to wrap our head around moderation in any sense. But, but you don't think it's happening on both sides too? Like, cause again, the alt-left have controlled a lot of the narrative as well. And by the way, oh, I'm not criticizing the alt-left or the alt-right. But I get I get annoyed when I see things like well this Spotify discussion about Joe Rogan. I like Joe Rogan's podcast as an entertaining and informational 
podcast, regardless of his opinions. He gets interesting characters, sure. and I like a lot of his opinions, and he's funny, and I'll watch it as for whatever reason. And I'm just using it as an example. There's there's plenty of examples on both sides. No, no, no. There's there's tons of examples on both sides, and and, and I've written about that too. I think our inability to un, like you know whether we're talking about microaggressions or trigger warnings or you know banning this you know speaker or that speaker there on on both ends of the extremes there is this there is cancel culture and it's a real problem so what i'm saying is that we've somehow instead of admiring people who can effectively stand in the middle we're we're almost mad at them for not taking sides yeah i agree i mean look i'll, I'll only bring this up for 60 seconds but my new york city is dead forever article i wrote this and then for whatever reason, because everything has become so politicized, it became, um, I don't want to say it became like a Republican issue versus versus Democrats. The Democrats hated me and Republicans liked it, but it just so happened Rush Limbaugh read it on his show, Glenn Beck read it on his show. By the way, I was also on MSNBC and other Democrat right. channels, but in New York, I think it got signaled as a conservative or a Republican issue, even though I don't mention politics one bit. In fact, one criticism I got was that I didn't mention de Blasio in my article. I didn't mention anything political. It was just fact-based and mostly economics-based. And But everything has to become, you know, you know, sort of politicized. And I think I got politicized in the wrong direction. So a whole extra group of people uh, didn't like it that really probably would have had no opinion on it or would have greeted it uh, with it in a normal world. No, I think I think because uh, cities are considered liberal and uh, the heartland is considered conservative, for you to point out that there was a flaw or a failing or potential doom for a city, all of a sudden that got sucked into the sort of partisan political complex that we have now, which is totally insane. That's something I've been thinking a lot about too. Like the, the key precept of Stoicism is an idea of objectivity, that facts are facts, right? And so you are pointing out what you believe to be facts about the direction of a city. And those facts are either true or they're not. So you can disagree with the facts for this reason, but you can't disagree because you don't like the facts, right? Which is like, an in, I, I wrote a thing about um, sending your kids back to school in the pandemic, which I find to be insane. Like if you were, if you were to walk up to a random parent 18 months ago and said, okay, a pandemic is raging through America. 200,000 people have died. It's spread primarily uh, through close contact, uh, extended periods indoors, and by not wearing masks. Yes or no, is it a good idea to send our kids to be around thousands of other kids in small rooms for many hours a day so their parents can go back to their lives shopping and, and going to the office, so on and so forth? They'd be like, no, absolutely not. That's crazy, right? And so, so that's that's my basic point. And you could disagree with the science of it. You could you could make these arguments or whatever. But most people responded with some version of, but my kids really need to go to school. Or they argued with, but school is important. Or you know, all, or what about the money for schools? All of which are utterly irrelevant, right? Like um, you're you're trying to say that because the facts I'm presenting to you are inconvenient. Therefore, they can be disregarded, right? So in the case of the, the New York thing, it, it's either true or it's not true that New York is going like this. 
whether you like New York City and are rooting for New York City is irrelevant to whether that narrative is true or not. Right. And I even kind of tried to sort of telegraph that in the article, just saying that I hope I'm wrong and I love New York City and I tell my own my own personal love affair with New York City and I'm from there and born there and raised there. And um, it was just... But it became, for me, I viewed it as an exercise in stoicism. Like there was no better way to build a thick skin than to have simply a million people hate you for a short period of time, including friends and family who would write articles. And Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld, but he was the least of it. I really did have like close people like who decided after 30 years of holding a quiet grudge against me, hey, now I'm, because I'm on Jerry Seinfeld's on my side, I'm gonna now trash James. And that was like, really? You also? Uh, and, you know, but I had to, there wasn't, you can't respond to anybody. And because that is useless and life is short. And, and you, you have to also, you can't ask why, because they have their reasons over 30 years or 20 years or 10 years, or in Jerry Seinfeld's case, who knows what his reasons were. And, you know, you just have to move on with the next thing in your life. And, and, and like in terms of, freedom of speech or, or other rights that we have, they're, they're considered rights of a country, but I always view them as personal. I mean, I'm gonna follow them because they're a personal philosophy, not sure. because they're a, a countrywide philosophy. So I feel like I have freedom of ex expression, so I have to expect, expect it from everybody else. Even if they hate me and lie about me and trash me for no reason, I kind of have to be okay with it. Well, look, and, and when we're talking about like stoicism, it's not like we're taking this sort of abstract theoretical philosophy and going, hey, this helps me as a public figure, what, who would have thunk, right? I mean, the reality, and what, this is what I was trying to do in Lies of the Stoics is that like Seneca, one of the most famous writers in all of Rome, Cato, probably its most prominent politician, Cicero, its most famous uh, speechwriter, Marcus Aurelius is the emperor, right? Like these are public figures, like people out in the world. And even in the early Stoics, like in the early days, um, Cleanthes is, was this sort of poor Stoic, um, but he was writing all this brilliant philosophy and there's all these rumors being spread about him. Like, how is this guy making a living? How is he supporting himself? He must be, so, so he gets dragged be, before this tribunal where he has to, he has to like turn over the records of how he's making his money. And, and so I think, you know, that's 2,300 years ago, this is happening. People are like suspicious of the motives of this philosophical thinker and writer because they don't understand it. And so the reality is for as long as people have been people and living in close enough groups for there to be a culture, we've been sort of suspiciously eyeing and judging and questioning the motives of people that we don't understand or disagree with. And so like Stoicism designed these very ideas to to sort of explain how you put up with that. And, and a big part of that is just understanding that there's a good chunk of this that you control and a good chunk of it that you don't control. And the big thing you don't control is what other people think. And, and I, I struggle with that myself, but you know, the philosophy is about those things for a reason. Yeah. Well, I think I, and I think it's, it's good. You mentioned you struggle this yourself. That's the reason why there's a philosophy for it is because everybody struggles with it. So we all are searching for these answers and stoicism, it, well, first off, I should just mention, and I'll mention this in the intro anyway, though I've been doing intros to these podcasts now. Uh, this, 
you just are, came out with Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. I really always hate subtitles, by the way. Do you, do you like subtitles? Like, do they force you to make a subtitle? So some, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Robert Greene, this is the 48 Laws of Power, he was like, the best books don't have subtitles. Uh, if you can get away with not having a subtitle, uh, don't have one. The only reason I do, I do sometimes think of uh, subtitles, like in this case, is um, I think for SEO purposes now they matter. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, once again, Ryan, you have written a, a, a book that is riveting, and I'm not just saying this. Like I thought when I my initial impression of this was that I mean before I got it, like when yeah. you first told me about it, I was worried this was just going to be almost like a throwaway book, like an easy book, or like a baseball card collection of Stoics and, oh, here's their stats, here's their basic beliefs, here's a one paragraph story. But you, uh, once again, you have this riveting story, you tell their stories. Like they all have like these incredible stories just surviving with their philosophy in very complicated situations. And that's almost how they, you could see them putting their philosophy to work in the, in the, in the stories that you tell about these great and often flawed individuals like, you know, some of the greatest philosophers ever, like Seneca, for instance, who who you admire, I admire, many people we know admire and has read their works, and yet he's the teacher of Nero, probably the worst emperor in Roman history. No. So, you know, these, a lot of these people are flawed, and, and the history is flawed. Well, and I think flawed, but then also just, like, surprisingly regular, right? Like, like your story and Zeno's story are very similar. I mean, Zeno is a successful merchant. He's riding high. He's leading this convoy of ships into Athens to trade uh, this, this, this substance called Tyrian purple, which is a purple dye, which is one of the sort of coveted luxuries of, of, the, of, rich, of rich Greeks at that time. And, and he suffers a shipwreck and he loses everything. He basically washes up in Athens with zero dollars in his pocket, having grown up in, you know, in, in privilege and wealth his whole life. And he, so he's, he's dead broke. And it's from the ashes of this disaster that he turns to philosophy and then ends up founding Stoicism. So like, just, just the idea of like, like nobody goes, Hey, do you know, do you know how Aristotle uh, came to philosophy? You know, he, he got dumped by his wife. She was having an affair. And then, uh, you know, he, he just, he remade it. Like, that's not the story, right? Like uh, so many of the other philosophers are these like just sort of brilliant geniuses who it feels like they were just dropped onto the earth fully formed. And so there's not a lot of like learning there. What I think is so fascinating about the Stoics is just like, these were real, real human beings. I mean, Marcus Aurelius is introduced to Stoicism because one of his mentors gives him a book recommendation. I mean, like how fucking modern is that? Yeah, no, and it's actually, it's really interesting to see how modern the philosophy is. And again, I think part of your uh, storytelling uh, in this book and your writing and and your, what you convey is not, this is not a history book, is that these people are like, it's as if they're living right now, right next door to you, and this is their life. You would, you would barely know this was like, a lot of these stories are from 2000 years ago because these, and you, you again, relate it to, you often relate stories to stories now. Like you bring up a lot of people who are, who are modern, who, who have this philosophy, but it, all of these issues that they dealt with are very relevant now, um, whether there's new technology now or not. And I think that's the fascinating thing about stoicism is that it's almost a secular religion that focuses on very cut and dry 
basic issues, like how to be a better person incrementally, how to be a wiser person, how to have virtue, how to have a sense of self-control, how to, how to deal with the opinions of others, how to deal with insane people who have some degree of power over your life, sure. which is not a new thing or an old thing. Well, so Plutarch, who's one of the great biographers of history, and actually, as it happens, his grandson is Marcus Aurelius's philosophy instructor. Um, but he, he writes that there's a difference between biography and lives. So biography is like this collection of facts, or it's trying to capture you know, the, the full scope of someone's life. Um, he's saying when we do lives, what we're doing is looking for key examples or anecdotes or quotes or gestures. Like he's saying that you can learn from an offhanded comment more than you can from the story of the grandest battle in history. And so the, the premise of this book too is not like, hey, what is everything this person ever did? But it's what are the most interesting, most revealing moments in Marcus Aurelius's life? You know, Seneca, uh, when Seneca was born, to me is much less interesting than the fact that he was born the same year as Jesus. Um, you know, and his birth is much less interesting to me than his sort of heroic, tragic death. And so the idea is how do we look at these pivotal, seminal moments and, and deduce lessons from them? Yeah, and, and, and like for instance, with, with Seneca, um, I didn't know this aspect of his story, but how his own internal um, tension with teaching Nero and then Nero clearly started going insane and being an extremely bad guy and Seneca's trying to figure out how personally to remove himself from this situation. Like what sort of negotiation do you do with a crazy person to get out of this and the troubles he had as a result of that. And that's a very real modern situation, which many people go through. No, I mean, Upton, maybe not at that level of high stakes, but, but yes. Upton Sinclair has this great line that it's really hard to get someone to understand something that their salary is dependent on them not understanding. And so it's a really great question with Seneca. It's like, how much did he know and dislike about Nero? And how much was he blind to because the job was a very well-paying, prestigious one? And then when he did leave, you know, was he leaving because he was like, I'm out, fuck this? Or was he just tired and, you know, wanted to escape while the, you know, the getting was good? There, there's like so many questions. and. And then it's it's also just tragic and fascinating. He goes to Nero and he basically says, I'll give you everything back, all the money, all the, like, he's like, I want, I just want out, you know? He's like, oh, it, you can take my entire, okay, this is a common thing. The emperor would sometimes confiscate the estates of enemies. He's like, you can have all my land, all my property, everything I've ever had, just let me walk away. And Nero goes, mm, no. Uh, I don't think so. He's like, uh, if you leave, it'll look, it'll, it'll make me look bad, right? And so he's like, I'm not going to let you leave. And and so Seneca gets sort of stuck in this limbo, and he can't quite get free. And then uh, soon enough, Nero decides, okay, I am done with you, um, but I'm going to accuse you of plotting against me, and I'm going to demand that you commit suicide. And so Seneca ends up paying the ultimate price. Uh, for defying Nero, but he never really actually fully did it either. So, I mean, there's just, it, it's, I, I wrote a piece for the New York Times maybe two years ago about 
you know, the, the sort of analogy today working in the Trump administration, not that Trump is a mass murderer uh, and, and sociopath like, like Nero, but how do you work for someone, as many people in the administration certainly are, how do you work for someone that you disagree with? And, and how do you detangle yourself from a situation like that? And, and, and I don't say that from a place of judgment. I mean, I worked for the CEO of American Apparel for many years and, and in my early 20s, this was a really difficult moral quandary. Like, how do you, how do you separate like your individual job from the context in which all the things are happening? You resign in protest, sure, but the company just keeps on going without you, right? So, so these are very real dilemmas that people have struggled with for thousands of years, right on down to myself. How did you resolve that in your case? It was it was really tough. I mean, in retrospect, like when I look back, I wish obviously that I'd left earlier. I wish that I'd stood up for myself more. I wish I drew the line. But I got to a place where I said, look, like me leaving, is that better for the team that I'm in charge of or is it worse for that team? You know what I mean? I felt like I was in a position to protect the group of five or six people that that I was responsible for. Now, the tension of that is, Okay, but what about the other people who may have been harmed by other things that were happening in the company? And this is where these moral questions get really tricky really fast. Ultimately, I ended up not leaving, but when the board decided to fire the CEO, I was a I was involved in that. So so I was involved in what eventually became an attempt to uh, right the ship and steer the company in a very different direction, which again, it, it brings up the same moral qualms because had I left, I wouldn't have been in a position to do that, right? And so, like when I when I look at the Seneca stuff, I am both appalled and deeply sympathetic at the same time because I I at a much smaller level understand how complex that is. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, 
but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast, and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like, hey, you're qualified for this or that, and so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. So when you were writing this, and and basically, I just I again want to say that this book is a great book. Like it, 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 everybody does have such a unique story. All these, and I didn't know, 
I really didn't know 90% of these philosophers, even though I've read a lot about Stoicism. I've read all of your books, for instance, but I pretty much knew the main names and I didn't know all the stories. I didn't know a lot of these people. I've got a whole bunch of places uh, bookmarked. I didn't know, for instance, about, you know, uh, I really liked your chapter on Arius, who was, I guess, Augustus's yeah. philosopher teacher or one of them. And that was fascinating to me and his approach to Stoicism. And each person had their own slightly different approach to Stoicism. I really enjoyed reading that that chapter. But what do you think you learned while researching this book? So one great thing about Stoicism, which is different, I think, from a lot of religions, is that you're always in this, um, and, and Stoicism's not a religion, but there's it's a, another philosophical approach, but you're always learning. There's a, yeah. there's a, a you're always supposed to want to learn. There's no, there's no gospel. There's nothing that is objective truth, really. So to be perfectly honest, I didn't know who a lot of these figures were. Like, like I'd maybe seen some of their names, or I, I was vaguely familiar with with their role, but I, I certainly didn't understand them like on a first name basis or something. But there is this element of stoicism which you which you bring up that like every time you touch it, it's different, and there's this. There's this poetic line the Stokes like that we never step in the same river twice. And I found that like, I mean, I've been studying Marcus Aurelius for almost 15 years and it really never occurred to me that he wrote almost the entirety, probably the entirety of meditations during the Antonine Plague. Like that every word in meditations was shaped by an ongoing pandemic that killed millions of people in Rome. And I, I, I never, I never fully understood that. And I, it didn't, like when you do understand that it changes just the weight of almost every word in the entire book. Um, you know, Marcus Aurelius talks about, he has, he, he, he talks about like losing people and he talks about grief. Like he's not just talking about his like dog dying. Like he, he lost several children, like not like one or two children. I mean, Marcus Aurelius lost seven children before adulthood. Like, I only have two children. Like, imagine losing seven children, just how profoundly that would affect you. So I think the more I got into the details of it, you really started to see these people as full-fledged humans who were complex, who had their own things going on. Even Seneca, to go back to this debate about working for Nero, like, if you understand Seneca's life, he's a brilliant student, he goes to law school and he's just beginning his law career and he comes down with tuberculosis and he has to travel to Egypt where he lives for 10 years convalescing from a disease. Then he finally gets back, he, he runs for public office, he wins, you know, he's, he's back on the, on the ascendancy, he's got this burgeoning political career and then he's exiled to a rock in the middle of the, the, the ocean by an emperor who's offended uh, by by his brilliance. And so the third time when somebody says, hey, you want to come back to Rome and w- you'll finally be powerful and influential, but the only catch is that you have to work for this kid, Nero. I mean, of course, that makes so much more sense than just like, oh, he was a crappy person and he was willing to compromise everything. You know what I mean? It's it's just you're like, oh, I, the, I, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah, it's tough. You always want to think that you'll do the right things. Everybody, I don't think anybody thinks, well, I'm going to go in there and do the wrong thing, but it's very easy to do the wrong thing in many situations. I think most people go through life just not even really thinking about 
these issues because they get so sucked into what is today's narrative? Is it the election? Is it climate change? Is it wearing a mask or not? Like, what do I need to tell me what I need to think about today? And without really taking a step back and I feel like a lot of what I learned when reading your book is that part of it is not just trying to be a wiser person or a more virtuous person, but also trying to remove myself from, you know, what it means to be human is different than what it means to be a citizen in this country, in this time, with these people, and so on. Because that's changes every day, every year, every kingdom, whatever. But what it means to be human and and kind of rise above the, the, the faults and, and petty arguments and petty issues of others, is, that's a very complicated issue, which most people don't deal with. And, and that I think human life or, or that a life can be defined by a sort of a brief moment of greatness. Like my, one of my favorite characters in the book is this guy, Rutilius Rufus. And Rutilius Rufus is a, is a governor of one of the provinces of Rome. Uh, so this sort of a far-flung colony, but in the U.S. it'd be the equivalent of like, you know, the governor of South Dakota or Alaska or something. So certainly powerful, but not by no means like the most powerful. And he kind of starts making changes. He starts reforming all these, uh, all these part, the corrupt parts of the tax law, which was, which was at, at, common in colonial systems. You, you're, you're not building a colony over there for the good of the people there. You're, you're trying to loot the colony of its wealth, right? Like that, the whole point of the colonial system is to bring stuff back to the mother country. And so he, he sort of sees this as wrong, that, that, that basically these sort of rich Romans are looting this province. And as the governor, he's in a position to, to sort of do something about it. And so he starts these very minor, totally fair reforms. And all of a sudden he finds himself sort of public enemy number one of these elites. And, um, so, so they accuse him of corruption, um, that he's the one doing what they are actually doing. And I guess because he, he said some things before they were able to kind of make it seem like he wasn't sympathetic to the people. Anyways, he gets brought up on these charges of corruption and it's a, it's a kangaroo court. It's total bullshit. He's completely innocent. And, uh, he, he ends up being convicted and not just convicted, but, but, but exiled and all of his property is stolen. But the one sort of stroke of mercy that the judge allows is that he gets to choose where he's going to go into exile. And so he kind of makes, you know, he makes this statement with his choice. He chooses to go back to the province that he was accused of looting, where, in fact, he was enormously popular and they accept him with open arms and they grant him citizenship and all of this. But but I just love this idea of, of like he's the last honest man in Rome. And his reward is to be driven out of town on a rail. And instead of being bitter, instead of complaining, instead of, you know, um, uh, folding, he just goes, all right, fine, whatever. And, and then he just goes right back to what he was doing. And so, you know, I just I, I think a lot of these Stoics are defined by this sort of heroic moment where they did the right thing. And then conversely, there's m moments and I talk about them in the book where a few Stoics sort of had this pivotal moment like uh, Junius Rusticus, who's Marcus Aurelius's uh, philosophy advisor, is the judge who, who presides over the trial of Justin Martyr. And, you know, he could have been merciful and he wasn't. And he's defined as sort of a monster because in this moment when he could have done the right thing, 
he struggled and kind of did the easier thing instead. So what do we derive from that story? The Rusticus story? Mm-hmm. That oftentimes the mores of your time, like like what Junius Rusticus did in that moment was perfectly, like so, so basically Justin Martyr is a Christian who'd actually studied some Stoicism. He's a philosopher. But at this time, there's a lot of suspicions about the Christians in Rome. And, and uh, he's, you know, accused of basically making a disturbance. He's, he's drawn, he, he's uh, dragged bef- before this tribunal. And basically, Rusticus says, look, um, do you believe in the Roman gods? Yes or no? And he says, no. And he says, will you make the sacrifices to the Roman gods? And he says, no. And he says, do you admit that you are in error? And he says, no. Uh, and he says, do you think that you're going to go to heaven if I execute you? Uh, and he says, yes. And then... Uh, uh, Junius Rusticus says, okay, bye. Uh, I, like I order your execution. And so, so here you have a position of uh, someone in a position of immense power over someone else who has almost no power. And instead of being merciful or kind or sort of, you know, uh, letting this thing go, which was really of no significance, he did a thing which was perfectly acceptable for the, the laws and standards of his time, but that history judges very unkindly. And I think this is something that we're struggling with in America. Look, slavery was legal for hundreds of years. Racism was institutionalized policy for hundreds of years. So a lot of people told themselves, well, I don't really like it, but it's legal. This is the system. So therefore, if I, if I am involved in it, it doesn't say anything about me. But as that's not how it works. Like the Stoics would say wrong is wrong and right is right. You have to do the unpopular, difficult thing. You have to you have to resist the pull of the mob. And so I think in some of those moments, you see the Stoics sort of failing to question the zeitgeist of their moment and, and looking really bad in retrospect. So why did you, I mean, I always find this to be true with books that part of the reason to write a book is to share some knowledge and experience, but part of it is to learn for yourself. Like, so yeah. you mentioned earlier the power of no, and i I, I wrote that in part because not that I was such an expert at saying no, because saying no is really difficult for me. So it's sort of like the whole metaphor. I wouldn't ask Brad Pitt for dating advice because yeah. he just says, hey, go out with me. And then he's, that's the advice yeah. that he that he would give. You have to ask someone who has has struggles with it. And what what, what made you decide to, that this was going to be your next book? Because you, you were, you were going on a couple of different directions in your, in your book writing. Yeah. So my, my other books are, mostly illustrations of the ideas of stoicism. That's what the obstacles the way is. He goes enemy, so is key, the stoic. This book I wanted to say, well, who are the people who came up with these ideas and how did they actually live up to them? And, and I think I've been writing about this more and uh, totally for the reasons you said, it's, it's about, what you need in your life that you hope is also commercially viable. But, you know, I think for me, the premise of the book was, okay, it's really easy to talk about these philosophical ideas, but what counts is, are you able to live them? And does your life reflect uh, these ideals? I heard this, I was reading this biography of Jimmy Carter or this book by Jimmy Carter not that long ago. And he was talking, I forget who he was quoting, but he was talking about how, you know, they used to, obviously they, just as they did with, with Junius Rusticus, they would haul these Christians, uh, you know, before these courts and, and, and uh, you know, try them for being a Christian because it was illegal. And he was saying, if that happened to you, 
would you actually be convicted of the beliefs that you claim to hold? You know what I mean? Like if you're if, if you're a Buddhist and then I filmed you for a week, uh, would you look Buddhist on film? You know, um, or if you know if you claimed uh, to to be this or that, what do not not what you say, but do your actions actually live up to those ideals? And so I think you know where I'm trying to go in my life is I don't just want to be a writer about these things. I want to prove that I believe these things. And so part of the exploration was, was for me just like, okay, what does a Stoic actually look like? Not what, is a, what are the beautiful books of the Stoics, but what does a Stoic life look like? And, and what, okay, so, so what did you, because by the way, I think you have consciously made those decisions to go in that direction. Like I've known you for a, a long time. You could have gone in any direction, really. You wrote your, you know, trust me, I'm lying, a book about marketing, and everyone was ready to basically hire you to be their marketer. So you could have built like some huge marketing career, make tens of millions, whatever. Uh, and instead, you basically made, built a farm and have goats and write books, which is kind of like you made the decision to have your dream life. Uh, and I feel like you have done a good job trying to live just from what I see, these, these precepts, these ideas. Well, thank you. I, I don't know. I, I would say, first off, you can't give people that much credit for what they didn't do. You know what I mean? So like the, the decision that I didn't go down this path further, I don't, I don't think is all that impressive. I, I certainly think I live a contemplative life, like I, like a philosophically contemplative life, which is the life of a writer, which is, which is wonderful, but it's also rather insular and selfish. Like naturally artists tend to be very selfish. So when I think you look, when you look at the lives of these Stoics, what every single one of them has in common is some sort of significant contribution to the common good outside of just their writings. And so I think for me, what I'm starting to think about and, and looking at in my life is just like, okay, how do you actually live these ideas? It, that doesn't mean you have to become president, but like, what, where are you actually putting them into practice? And, and I think also having kids, it forces you to think about this a little bit more too, because you're telling your kids, hey, this is important, this is important. But like, again, looking at your behavior or the choices in your life, is it clear that you sincerely believe those things? Well, even having beliefs, I think, is a almost outdated concept. It's a <laughs> like little transgressive these days, sadly. Yeah, like I feel like people feel like, okay, I need to, I, I need to make a lot of money and and raise, you know, give my kids the best and blah 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 and and do whatever it takes to do that, and then finally I'll be able to die, and that's life. Sure. And and maybe I'm being overly cynical. Obviously, not everyone's like that. People do. I do think people in general have good intentions, but more powerful than their good intentions is I need to make a lot of money. Yes. And, and maybe that's always been the case historically. I don't know, but, uh, I do think it's hard to take the first steps of living a, let's call it a philosophical life or a contemplative life where you think about these issues. But that's why I like also like, like I'll just, I'm just in the Arius chapter because we were talking about that Augustus's, uh, teacher and he, he defines these four virtues, which is, similar to the four, you know, virtues or categories of, of all these Stoics, but he talks about, you know, learning wisdom, learning self-control, learning justice, which is different from 
wisdom and and learning bravery, which is I thought was uh, an interesting definition. And it's also related to what you were just saying about a lot of these Stoics have in their stories are some kind of heroic gesture, almost movie like gesture. The guy of the the idea of choosing to go back to where you could potentially be have the most danger. Uh, in in that one example you stole, you you mentioned. But he, he Arias says bravery is the knowledge of what is terrible and what isn't and what is neither. What do you think? What what what's your view on that line? So so this virtue of courage, I think, is probably maybe the the main deficiency of our time. Uh, we we have uh, a whole sort of generation or or uh, segment of society that's that's utterly afraid to say what they think, to do what they think is right for fear of the most minuscule losses you can imagine. I mean, like politically right now, like is, is it, are we really to believe that, that the vast majority of, of these politicians which hail from all over the United States are 100% in this camp or 100% in this camp? Of course not. But what they're really scared about is not being reelected so they're scared, and I and I've I've talked to a number of them myself because they've read my books, and and you talk to them, they go, oh, you know, you know, Jeff Flake, he he said something negative about Trump, and now he he didn't get reelected, and it's like Jeff Flake probably made two million dollars last year, you know, as an out of office politician, as a lawyer, consultant, lobbyist, author, you know, like like we have these people who are afraid to rock the boat to make controversial decisions, uh, to 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 go against their party. And on both sides, and the downside is ridiculously small. The thing they're afraid of is being criticized on Twitter by you know these groups or that groups or or you know losing their personal power somewhat and having to pursue a different line of work temporarily. So I think that's uh, I think what you get from the Stoics is like they're sort of they shoot from the hip, they say what they think, they do what they think is right. And they, and they, they don't give a shit, you know, what the, what the consequences are because they have some confidence in themselves that, uh, they'll, they'll be able to survive it. And so I think what he's saying, what's terrible and what's not, a lot of the things that people are afraid of are not remotely scary. Right. And that's a really good point is that a lot of people get scared of these small things and these stoic philosophers are, they have confidence you just put it, they have confidence that they're going to be able to get through that scary moment. Like everyone is getting canceled in ancient Rome and they have confidence that, Hey, it is what it is. I'm going to do this thing that I view as correct. And I have confidence that I'll survive this. I think this lack of confidence is a big part of it. Like to your point, what, you know, it's so interesting to me that everybody who believed X about taxes also believed why about masks yeah. and like there was all these areas that had nothing to do with each other but if they were the on the democrat menu or the republican menu you had to believe with everything on the menu right. or you were canceled right. and i just thought that was just horrible on 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 both sides but but i think confidence goes a long way towards surviving these moments well confidence and i think sort of independence right yeah, independence and having some sort of backbone, meaning not courage, but a very thorough belief, not just confidence in yourself, but a confidence in your belief system. Well, I, I like Nassim Taleb's line of like, if you see fraud and you do not say fraud, you are a fraud. And so I think what we, 
People are afraid to say what they think, even though they know that what they have to say is important. And then they somehow, this doesn't change their perception of themselves. So like, I just, like my policy is like, if I have an opinion, I say that opinion. I was talking to uh, to Tom Bilyeu the other day and he was talking about um, politics and, and he was like, I realized I wasn't saying certain things because it would be bad for my business, you know? And to me that's, and, and he was saying how that, it was realizing that that's why, what he thought that made him totally change his mind. And, but I think a lot, like, I know so many authors who are like, cancel culture is bad, um, you know, uh, people should be able to say what they think, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, well, where are you on this, 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 and this? And they're like, well, I don't want to get involved. People will be mad. You know, so it go like cancel culture, the people who are trying to cancel people are a problem. But then the people who are intimidated by cancel culture are also the problem. And you have to be willing to say what you think. And if you don't say what you think, how do you not see that as cowardice? Yeah, I, I agree. But I guess the, the issue is, is that people don't see it as cowardice because they either firmly believe that they do really do think the exact same as 50 million other people on a thousand different issues, or they are afraid, but they don't think anything's wrong with that because they have a, uh, uh, you know, they want to see such and such person elected and they want to be a part of it. And I don't know. Well, I, I think really what don't lot, know. Actually. I think what a lot of people are doing is they're, they're like, somebody needs to do something. And then they're like, but I'm going to save myself until it really gets bad or until it's really important. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. you have this scenario where everyone's keeping their powder dry and uh, the reality is somebody has to do something. And if they'd done it a year ago or two years ago, we'd be in a much better position. And again, I think this is true for a lot of different issues and a lot of different things. And I, so I, I don't want people to think I'm sort of just uh, subtweeting a certain politician. Uh, it, everyone wants someone else to do it. And uh, I like people that step up. Like, that's what I appreciated about the, the, so in your piece, you're like, hey, this is what I think. And then what I liked about Jerry Seinfeld is he's like, this is getting passed around. I disagree with this. I'm going to call up the New York Times and say what I think, you know? And instead of just going, like what a lot of people did, which is they probably saw your piece and they said, oh, this is, this is so stupid. I hate this. I hope somebody else responds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and then it's funny how the narrative tries to change. Like I saw, I, I did quite a bit of media um, during that whole time. And it's interesting how many outlets just really wanted to provoke some kind of really negative response from me. I mean, some, some segments even didn't get air because I didn't say something bad about Jerry Seinfeld. I just would right. not say anything bad about Jerry Seinfeld because he's entitled to his opinion. And I, and he might not think it, but we're actually on the same side of the issue. We both love New York and want New York to be, you know, sure. better. It's just, we had different ways of presenting it. I don't agree with the way he presented it, but he's entitled to present it any way he wants. And I didn't have any need to say anything bad about him. I, I more had a problem with the people who were just were trashing me just to trash me, which he did in part, but. Well, I think if you look at all the Stoics in the books with a few exceptions, is that there were all moments or crises or, you know, uh, problems of their time. And at every point, the Stoic, one of those Stoics stepped up. You know, there's that famous line, if not me, then who? 
And, and I think that's like a question that the Stoics ask themselves. I don't think from an egotistical point, but they're just like, if everyone said someone else will take care of it, then no one will take care of it, you know? And, and so I think a Stoic steps up and says, I'll try. You know, and, and what I appreciate too about Stoicism is that it's a framework rather than a, you know, set of laws. So they don't say, you know, murder is a sin. You know, I'm, I'm sure. taking an extreme. Um, they don't say, you know, coveting your neighbors, whatever is a sin. They just talk about how the the importance, again, I'll, I'll take Arius's four things as an example, wisdom, self-control, just take those first two things. It's It's not about being told this is good and this is bad. It's about figuring out how to develop the quality so you could determine for yourself what's good and what's bad. I, I, I interpret it that way. I totally agree. And Arius is a great example of that because, so so for people who are not super familiar with Roman history, so Julius Caesar, uh, you know, it basically uh, usurps or throws over the Roman Republic, which had stood for hundreds of years. And his main opposition in that is Cato, a famous Stoic who I, is one of the bigger, I think, best chapters in the book. So you might think from that, that the Stoic is diametrically opposed to anything but the Roman Republic. And in fact, Cato kills himself rather than when he ultimately loses to Julius Caesar, even though Julius Caesar was planning on pardoning Cato, Julius uh, Cato kills himself rather than live under what he believes to be Julius Caesar's tyranny. Uh, and then, as you know, Julius Caesar is shortly thereafter assassinated and Octavian, his, his nephew, becomes the, actually the first emperor of Rome. Octavian and Augustus are the same person. So Arius is the Arius, the Stoic, is the main advisor to the emperor of Rome, which just like five years earlier, 10 years earlier, a different Stoic had been willing to die to prevent. And so there's a huge, like, I think when people like, and I get this too, though, why are you being political? I actually keep most of my, like my policy beliefs to myself. Right. Um, the, I think the Stoics, there's a lot of room for disagreement on specific policies or approaches or whatever. But I think the Stoics were universal in their belief in those four virtues and in, you know, our obligations to each other and to doing the right thing and so on and so forth. It just happened that these two Stoics had radically different political beliefs, even inside that same framework. Or, or perhaps they felt like perhaps. Our, you know, Arius thought, hey, if I'm going to, regardless of Augustus's political beliefs, the best place I could have influence is the few times in his life where he might turn to me and say, what do you think I should do? Even if I don't know, because look, Augustus by modern standards would be the ultimate worst fascist under the exact definition of fascism, yes. Augustus was the worst fascist imaginable. He killed all his enemies. It was state-run capitalism. You know, he rewarded his his colleagues and and punished the people against him and stole all their assets. And then, of course, that led to seventy years or whatever of peace because he he lived sure. to, in, incredibly long. So there's a lot of argument. You know, morality was different then and politics was different then. And, and everybody knew what they were getting themselves into when they were involved in the ruling class. So you can kind of look at it that way, but there wasn't like an objective sense. Well, I'm not going to work with Augustus cause he just killed like 500 of his enemies. It's like, well, I better, 
better be here so he doesn't kill 501. Well, and and I think that's the argument that Seneca was making to himself with Nero, for which there was actually really good precedent, Arius being the ultimate example of that. So yeah, it's it's really complicated. And that goes to what you and Tom Billy were talking about. Like sometimes you, you get to pick and choose your fights. So like I could say to myself, you know what? I really am pro-choice and, and women have a right to choose what they do with their bodies. But I could spend my entire life arguing about that with other pe- with people and, and really nothing gets accomplished. Or I could say to myself, you know, I really think everybody should learn that they don't have to get approval to write a book or, you know, do, do what they want in life. And, you know, there's lots of different choices, more choices than they think. And I could say to myself, well, if I spend my life arguing about one thing I believe in, I might cut myself off from a bigger message to a billion other people that I that I want to help influence. And it's true. Uh, it's it definitely true. And I think you don't want to get bogged down in little things here or there. But I mean, one of the things that I think about when I'm debating, you know, I have this piece that I want to write that I'm, I'm not sure if I'll publish or not. That's got some sort of political overtones. Um, one of the things I think about is advice that you gave me, which is like, always publish the things you're afraid to publish. And so when I find myself going, well, I don't want to do this because I'm going to piss off some fragile, sensitive or whatever people that I disagree with. To me, that's usually a really good reason to do it um, because I don't yes, want those people to boss me around. Well, I mean, look, I did that I, I, not to, I feel like I bring up this New York city thing. So I apologize. No, to I love talking about listeners. it. But like, the, I was afraid to hit publish on that for a very unusual reason for me, which is that it's probably the first time I wrote something that wasn't optimistic. <laughs> like I didn't have any solutions. And usually when I write something, like let's say I write about, you know, 2008, 2009, I was writing a lot about the economy. I was extremely optimistic and there were solutions and I kind of saw the light at the end of the tunnel and everybody hated me for that. Like I stopped being asked to go on, you know, different news shows for a while while I, you know, while the economy came out the other side. But with this, I, right before I hit publish, I, I always ask myself, what am I afraid of here? I was afraid that people are going to be upset that I'm not, they can't just go to me for hope on this one because I don't know the answers. And I was worried that I've had established this brand, particularly a lot during this pandemic. Oh, there's James will have some nuanced way to interpret this where he'll find a way to in the maze to optimism. And I just didn't have it this time. And I was worried what people would think of me. Well, I went through that a little bit with my first book too, where I think, I think the things that people should definitely write and say are the things that people are saying in private, but refusing to say publicly. And so I felt like that's what I was doing in my book. And and then you're, you're even though it, that's the weirdest thing is everyone, like, like people were really mad about your article, but like, I know like 10 people that are packing up and moving out of New York city. Oh yeah. By the way, again, the majority, the overwhelming majority of people were not mad at me about my article, but we hear from the ones who were because they were threatened in some way. What I mean is like your, your point is sort of demonstrably uncontroversial. It, it's like, you know, it's, right. the evidence is is pretty undeniable. It, you, you could argue that uh, maybe you're reading too much into it or that your conclusions are too extreme, but like everyone is talking about that and you wrote about it. And and I found with my, with Trust Me Online, I was like, I'm going to say the things that all the things that people are saying behind the scenes, but are not really admitting. And I thought when I published it, the reaction would be, 
yes, finally, he's saying it. But instead, so many of those people, for exactly the courage reason we talked about earlier, those people were like, no, that's not true. He's the bad person. And it's like, but behind closed doors, you say and do much worse things than me. And so right. there was a really weird element of that. But I feel I feel like it's the reason that book worked and it resonated with the audience is that it was true and it did resonate in, with what they felt was happening in their gut. They knew it was true, just no one was saying it. And so I think as a writer or an artist or a comedian, your job is to speak to the uncomfortable truths that other people are afraid of, of voicing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that's part of the process, not of exhibiting wisdom or courage, but of learning it. Yeah. Because when you say something, like when you were, when you wrote, trust me, I'm lying, your first book and people started saying, oh, well, this is the, the guy who lies. Like he's the marketer who lies, right? I don't, I believe in marketing. That's, you know, not lying, blah, blah, blah. You were probably offended by a lot of those people and you had to kind of develop your own inner resources which is related to stoicism of finding wisdom and courage and bravery through it now we're, we're talking about a, a book about marketing but, but sure. still no i mean look and i was 25 years old so i didn't have like i was like shit did i just blow up my life you know like like will i ever recover from this what do i what do i do and that was like a very real thing and i would have moments where i'm like I shouldn't do this. This is a really bad idea. But but I feel like I'm, I'm actually writing about this in my next book. There's this moment um, where uh, Theodore Roosevelt invites Booker T. Washington to have dinner at the White House. And this is the first time that a black man uh, who wasn't a slave had ever had dinner, like had ever eaten inside the White House. And uh, obviously this is, uh, that's actually not, I don't know if that's totally true, since the Civil War. I know uh, Abraham Lincoln had, had Frederick Douglass. But anyways, it's a huge moment. But black people are not, at, no Southern state is going to be okay uh, with this happening. And, and in fact, they, they weren't okay with it. Um, there's a famous quote from a, a Republican senator, or a Democratic senator in the South, who says, we're going to have to lynch a thousand black people to put them back in their place after this. So anyways, this is, this is the thing that, that FDR is, uh, that, that Roosevelt is doing. And he's questioning, what he, he's, he writes later, I hesitated for a moment and he's like, but then precisely because I hesitated, I knew I had to do it and it was the right thing. That's not a perfect test, but I do tend to find that when you have that moment of doubt and you're thinking, as Tom was saying that, you know, I'm not doing this because it might be bad for my business or bad for my polling numbers, or I might get some angry emails. To me, that's usually a really good sign that it's it's probably very heartfelt, probably totally right, and really going to resonate with the vast majority of people. Right. So, you know, I just, I want to go through like, you know, let's say we, we all know wisdom is this virtue that the Stoics admire, they, they live it by example, as you just said, but how does one go about cultivating it? You know, and, and just reading meditations by Marcus Aurelius is not going to be enough. <laughs> like you have to, you have to live it to some extent and you have to be triggered, you know, to overuse that word, but you have, you have to be triggered by life a little bit to kind of be, respond to it. I think it's important to see wisdom not as a thing that you possess, but as a, a an ideal you are approaching. So, like, there's a an anecdote about Marcus Aurelius. He's 
late in his reign. He's in his 50s or 60s, and uh, he's, he's just gotten back to Rome. He'd been with the troops for a very long time, just gotten back to Rome, and uh, he's seen leaving his, his palace, and his friend says, Marcus, where are you going? And he says, I'm off to see uh, Sextus the philosopher to learn that which I, I do not yet know. And, and the guy is like bowled over. He's like, this is the wisest, smartest, most powerful man in the entire world. And he's leaving to go attend the lecture of a philosopher. He's not even summoning the philosopher to his house for a private session. He's gonna go take a philosophy class. Like how, 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 how humble and beautiful, but also absurd is that? And, uh, and, and that was true in Rome. Like Hadrian, the, the Roman emperor, two emperors before Marcus, who selects Marcus to eventually become king, um, attended Epictetus's lectures, who was a slave. And so I think for the Stoics, learning was this ongoing process that you were never exempted from, that was possible for anyone, but was the obligation of everyone. Yeah, and, and talk a little bit about self-control and all these, all these virtues are related. There's, you could argue there's only one virtue really. Yeah. And self-control is just another slice of wisdom, but you know, so in the, in, in, in this one chapter, it says self-control is the knowledge of what things are worth choosing and what are worth avoiding and what is neither. But this of course is extremely difficult because self-control is related to habits, genetics, the philosophy of everyone around you and how it influences you and, and on and on and on. So the, the other way that self-control is rendered uh, as a virtue is temperance. And unfortunately, because of the temperance movement in the United States in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries, we think temperance is abstaining from alcohol. But temperance is just like moderation, the right amount of things. And so I think the Stoics would define moderation or self-discipline as temperance or whatever as, you know, uh, not too little, not too much, and of course, of some things, not at all. And so I think uh, knowing what the right amount is, whether it's the right amount of money or the right amount of, of work or the right amount of relationships or the right amount of, you know, any, any decision, the right amount of food. So I think, you know, the, the idea of self-control is a really tricky but essential thing. But I, I wonder... I'm curious what the what the neuroscience of stoicism is. So for for instance, we live in a in a primate, you know, we're we're primates and primates rank themselves, every tribe of primates for millions of years rank themselves from alpha to omega and humans are no different. Like right now at the top of Yahoo is Forbes list, uh, their new 2020 list of the top ranking billionaires. And money is often the way people rank themselves in life. And they literally think they're better than someone else if they have more than them. It's, it's not just a cliche. It's, it's, this is a real way people judge themselves. And, you know, getting kind of nurturing yourself off of this addiction to, which is a, a two million year old a neurochemical addiction to hierarchy and, and where, what's your rank? in whatever subculture or culture you're in, this is an addiction. It's very difficult to, to have self-control out of that. It's, it's a fascinating thing because, and, and the Forbes list is such a great example of it. So a couple of things for people who are not familiar. So first off, the Forbes list is complete horseshit. Like- Yeah, it's, it's totally wrong. It's, it, not only is it totally wrong, but like every year there's a massive scandal about how a couple years ago they massively exaggerated or got somebody else's worth wrong. 
you know, Elizabeth Holmes was supposedly worth $10 billion. And then it turns out she's actually worth $0 or the Kardashians have dramatically overstated their wealth. Donald Trump famously was a manipulator of the Forbes list, right? So, so anyone who's ever been on that list knows just how ridiculously flimsy the criteria and the estimation of it is. And anyone, like the difference between having $30 billion and $1 billion is imperceptible to any human being. I mean, a billion dollars, you're making $100 million a year on interest alone. Um, you know, like you're, you're, you have more money than a human being could ever possibly spend in their lifetime. It'd actually be difficult to give it all away because you're making so much of it so quickly, right? So um, then you would think, well, so obviously, like I get why people who don't know these things uh, are interested in the Forbes list. It's it's just entertainment. But but the billionaires themselves actually like care about this with list. It. They're obsessed with it and they measure that like their happiness is actually impacted by the fact that, you know, uh, this asshole is ranked, you know, six spots above them and that it's actually not true. Which is why it's all, which is why I mentioned like the neuroscience yeah. of stoicism because all this is related to, oh, I get, dopamine when I move up the list, just like you get dopamine when you get more likes on a tweet mm -hmm. and, and so on. It's just, being ranked five versus six on the Forbes billionaire list is the same as getting more tweets than another person got yes. or more, more likes or whatever. And so it's, it's this very real thing that's, a, that, a, that's driving the world. So it's like, on the one hand, it's probably good for society that these billionaires are always like, like, you know, if, if Elon Musk didn't have anything to compete for, maybe humanity wouldn't be wouldn't progress at the same speed or whatever. But at the individual level, this is deeply unhealthy. And so when when the Stokes are talking about self-control, this is precisely the kind of battle that they're waging. And you think about someone like Marcus Aurelius. Here you have uh, the all-powerful emperor of the one of the biggest empires to ever exist. But when you look at meditations, he's having to do real work to be like, dude, Nobody cares. You're going to die and no one will probably remember you. He's like, who who even knows who Vespasian was? Vespasian was the emperor like four or five emperors before Marcus Aurelius. It's like, who cares about Vespasian, right? And he says, you know, what good is, he's like, Alexander the Great and his mule driver are both fucking dead and nobody cares, you know? And and so you, it really does take work. And And like, obviously the billionaire level is sort of absurd, but like, you know, I get an update from my publisher every week about the bestseller list. And there's a part of you that goes, what? I dropped three spots, you know, or like, why am I, why am I not getting the, the publicity that so-and-so is getting? And you have to remind yourself just like how utterly pointless this is, how little it matters, and that you're depriving yourself of happiness and gratitude and success now on, based on the lie that if you move up three spots, it will be transformatively different, which of course it won't be. Right. So I think it's, it's a difficult thing, I think, to wean yourself off of that, that need, you know, and that's what self-control is about. That's what the wisdom is about is I feel like stoics, it's really about being human outside of the normal primate chemicals that are constantly, you know, controlling our behaviors. It's like you need the wisdom to know the true value of things. That's what the Stokes would say. And then you need the self-control, the moderation to apply it, right? And then, and then you also need courage. The courage is there to be like, yeah, 
I'm not going to participate in this race. And some people are going to think less of me because I'm not, you know, racking up all this publicity or whatever it is, right? Um, it's like, uh, yeah, you could see, it's like, let's say you, you go, okay, Instagram followers don't matter. So you know they, they objectively don't matter. And then you go, okay, I'm not going to get in a pointless competition with some of my peers who seem to have more followers than me. And then you have to go, I'm okay with people judging me as being less than so-and-so because I have fewer followers than them. So, so all these virtues are interrelated and they're hard to separate. Well, Ryan, I, how many times have you been on my podcast? Like, I think I have the times. most, right? Do I have the record? <laughs> probably, probably because definitely for every book and for several of your articles and just also whenever you're just visiting town. <laughs> well, so, th well, thank you. And uh, I would love to return the favor at some point. So let's set that up. Yeah, well, well, Lives of the Stoics, again, I always enjoy all of your books no matter what, but I'm always happy to, to share them uh, or through these podcasts with and, and, you know, tell other people to get them because it's just, it's just a great entertaining read. It's educational and it makes you think about your life and about the issues in your life. So it's a, it's a great book. Uh, people should sign up for your reading list too. Like I read your, it's, it's one of the few newsletters I read. I read your news, your reading list every month. Okay. I also read the daily stoic every day. So it's the first, probably one of the first things I read every morning is the daily stoic. But, uh, how do they, how do they find the reading list and the daily stoic? Yeah, so at Daily Stoic on Instagram, dailystoic.com, and then ryanholiday.net, and then the books are available everywhere books are sold. But And you can get the reading list on my site. Um, but when I, one of the things I wanted to say that's amazing about you that I don't think people get enough credit, give you enough credit for is, even though I have been on for every single one of my books, you have read every single one of the books. And I can tell you actually, like when you have guests on, you actually you didn't just have like an assistant give you like seven key points that you should hit up. Like you actually know the person's work, which is always the best kind of show to be on. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I appreciate it. And, and part of the reason is, is because I want, there's no point if I'm not trying to learn myself, I'm not just trying to build a little tiny podcast business. Otherwise, why am I doing a podcast? Agreed. Agreed. So, so, well, thanks once again, Ryan. And what's the next book? When am I going to have you on again? Uh, I can't tell you. I mean, I'll have you on again anytime, but uh, what's the next it's book a, anyway? It's a secret. I can't tell you. All right. Fair enough. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.